2: Welcome to the program. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbach. It's Tuesday. It's four o'clock. You're listening to AM 630 The Word. That means it's time to get started on the program. Uh, this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. All you need to do is dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR at 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at com, or you can use our Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. So it's Tuesday. We don't have anything to talk about. So let's get right to questions while we await your phone calls. Uh, Ronald says, should Christians make plans Or just wait on God to tell us what to do. You know, Ronald, I once did a study, and I can't remember where it is or how long ago it was, but I did a study about um, along the way. If if you've got a Bible study program uh, along the way or while they were on their way, something like that. And the one thing that became clear to me is that God never meets a stationary target. And I think a lot of us, we get this idea of God's sovereignty that's sort of messed up. We think, well, okay, God's just going to tell me to do what he wants me to do, or he's going to make me do what he wants me to do. No, God meets all of us while we are living our lives, while we're doing the will of God, while we're serving the Lord, while uh, we're, 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 we're trying to get close to him. And so, yeah, Christians need to make plans. Now, what we can't do, Ronald, is, is hold those plans tightly. We have to be able, like Jesus say, nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. Now, very practically, Ronald, one of the things that I do on a daily basis is I offer this day to the Lord. Uh, I tell him, look, I can't do your will on my own. I don't even want to do your will on my own. That's just the human condition. But I want to hold on to you, Lord. So let me follow you. And as we follow the Lord, he's going to let you know what his plans for you are. So, yeah, we should make plans. I know, for example, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. I'm going to spend some time in the Bible with Paula. She's going to read to me. Uh, We're going to go to our new building and pray. Uh, Then I'm going to come up here and get ready for the Wednesday night Bible study. She's got things that she has on her schedule. Of course, we make plans. That's just part of being a good steward of our time. However, we need to give Jesus the right to interrupt those plans anytime, any day. And I think that's how we know what God is going to want us to do. Again, God doesn't meet a stationary target. When we're just sitting and waiting and doing nothing, Uh, we're missing the whole point of being empowered by the Holy Spirit, um, being given gifts by the Holy Spirit. Um, what we do is we we minister to others. And Ronald, just for you and anybody else who's struggled with this, well, how do I know what God wants me to do? Um, Let me say, you will never know what God wants you to do if two things are present. One, you're not a man of the Word. God will speak to you very clearly. He will give you direction in His Word at just the right time. But the other thing is, You've got to be spending the capital God has given you, the the, the Spirit of God living in you. You've got to spend that capital for the benefit of others. When you're thinking about you or you're consumed with your issues or your life, um, then, then you're going to be sort of on a desert island, stranded. Uh, when you start ministering to others, well, that's when the Spirit of God will move you. That's when He'll begin speaking to you and give you direction. So, yeah, make your plans. But just let the Lord know. Now, obviously, he knows everything. But remember, this is a partnership, a relationship. Just let the Lord know that, um, God, whatever I'm doing today, if you've got somebody you want me to talk to, if you've got somebody that needs to be ministered to, um, just point him out. Show me the way. And I'll do that. Let me say one of the things, Ronald. Um, for those who are married... Your home, in order to find out what the Lord wants you to do, your home has to be in order. Your marriage has to be a partnership. You've got to rightly represent Jesus in those places closest to you. And if you're not doing that, well, then there's not going to be any instructions. But the idea that we just sit around and God will let his plan for our lives be known, that's simply not a biblical plan at all. You know, even the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, he was on the move. He was on the move when Jesus apprehended him on the road to Damascus. He he was doing the wrong thing, but that's where Jesus could catch him, stop him, and turn him around and send him on a a path and a life of service that's beyond anything that we can imagine. So, uh, yeah, make your plans. uh, Do the best you can. Be faithful. Um, But, Ronald, the Lord always has the opportunity to interrupt your plans. Good question. Vince has a question. He says, 1 Corinthians 6 says that the saints will judge angels. What does this mean? Um, Vince, let me read the passage for the audience, and then we'll go. And I'm going to start in chapter 6, verse 1. The context is a dispute between believers. He says, Paul does, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Now, this isn't a doctrinal issue where where there's any specific direction about how we're going to judge angels. I mean, it's clear that we are going to judge angels at some point. But, but this is a rebuke. The Corinthians were suing one another, believer against believer, and in front of a judge who is an unbeliever. And Paul's whole point is this brings uh, shame to the name of the Lord. This brings reproach to his name. He says, if this is the case, you are already defeated. And so his argument here, it's sort of from the lesser to the greater. Uh, If I have a dispute with somebody, um, why would I take it to somebody who's ungodly instead of before the saints? And then he gives us the qualification to the saints. uh, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, we don't know because we're not told in what capacity We're going to judge saints or or judge angels uh, in verse three. Um, So, yeah, we're going to judge. We're going to be sort of a, um, a statement of God's wonderful grace. And people that are going to be condemned for eternity to hell are going to have to deal with the fact that people like you and me, we got saved. And then the fallen angels, we're going to judge. And I can only presume that we will be judging fallen angels the same way uh, by making a statement to the goodness and the grace of God. Uh, if it can save us, it could have saved you. So it's not we're going to pronounce judgment or we're going to be God's instrument of judgment. We, we will be uh, in the great tribulation in the millennial kingdom of the Lord. We will be uh, instruments that God uses to judge those who are disobedient. But when we judge angels, it's going to be the fallen angels, and we're simply going to be a statement to them of the grace and the goodness of God. And um, the point is, if we're going to be in that capacity, then certainly the, the church ought to be able to judge worldly cases. Paul calls them trivial cases between saints. Now, let me say this. Vince, when... We have a problem with somebody. It's never trivial to us. But God is trying to give us perspective. Considering all the things going on in this earth is really my dispute with another believer worth suing over. Now, again, we don't want to be wronged. I had a question yesterday about being cheated. Nobody wants to be cheated. But the point is, why would we go to court before unbelieving judge and unbelieving world when Christians ought to be able to settle this, these issues. And that's why it very matters very much. So, Vince, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Xavier. Um, Pastor Ron, how do you react to near-death experiences that people have had? Um, Xavier, I absolutely don't react to them at all. Um, you know, most of these near-death experiences come back with these fanciful tales of heaven, and I saw Jesus and all these things. And we know, if we read Second Corinthians chapter 12, and this is why knowing the Bible is so important, if we read Second Corinthians 12, we know that Paul saw inexpressible things, things that man was not permitted to tell and what that means is if man's not permitted to tell him if I have a near death experience and I go into the presence of Jesus then I'm not able to communicate the details it's it's that god wants those things between him and me and so the people that say well I've been to heaven I saw the light I saw my mansion I saw the golden streets none of that is true now we have to remember that satan is described as an angel masquerading a, a, a An entity masquerading as an angel of light. And I have come to believe, Xavier, I know people, unbelieving people, that I've been sharing with or talking to. And I know people who've had what they call near-death experiences. I saw the light, I felt so warm, I felt so comfortable. I just knew I was saved. And then when they come back, they'll say things like, well, I'm already saved. I don't need to be saved. I don't need to believe in Jesus. Those kinds of things... Because they've already had that experience. I believe that is an illusion, a trick of Satan. And, um, you know, the reality is that uh, if Paul couldn't talk about those things, then man is not permitted to tell. And to come back to write books or make movies, most of those books, Xavier, have been Proven to be uh, false um, uh, in many cases. In some cases, I should say, in some cases we've had people recant and and books pulled off the shelves and things like that. But uh, I don't react to the near death. I don't react to the near death experiences at all. Uh, it's just not an issue. So uh, if somebody would say to me, you know, I I I, I died or I nearly died. And and I I went to heaven. I saw heaven. If I said, "Well, what did you see?" and they said, "You know, the Lord said I couldn't tell you." Well, I would believe then that they probably did have a really near a real near death experience, but to come back and share with everybody. Now I know we do it. We rationalize, we "Well, I'm just witnessing." Well, most of the time, people are trying to make money from books, they're trying to build a foundation for a ministry. Um, man's not permitted to tell is pretty clear, and yet these near-death experiences have so much to tell. I read one guy who said that uh, when he was in the hospital, Jesus sat on his hospital bed, and he described him. He said he was like six foot two. He had these huge hands, and I just knew that I was in the presence of the Lord. Those things just aren't true, Xavier. So uh, I would spend my time reading um, more solid, dependable material. So that's my advice. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call um, toll-free. 877-630-KSLR. Adam says... What is the advantage of being a dispensationalist? I know there's a lot of controversy about it. Adam, there shouldn't be any controversy at all. A dispensationalist simply means that we can validate that God works different ways at different times. Um, I think the most foundational proof of dispensationalism is if you believe that Israel and the church are two separate entities you are a dispensationalist even if you don't understand that you are we know that God worked um, with uh, the, the, through the law uh, with with Moses when Joshua came uh, Joshua was basically saying you focus on my word I, I, I spoke through Moses but now I'm going to speak through my word we know that uh, in these last days, uh, Hebrews 1, one says he has spoken to us in son, literally, that's the translation, not in his son, but in son, indicating that Jesus is God's final word to this earth until he comes back again. Now, the advantage of being a dispensationalist is that it makes sense of the Bible. You know, when I get these calls on this radio program, people that say, well, we should celebrate the Sabbath. That's the day we should worship on Saturday, not on Sunday. I always ask them, well, to whom was God speaking when he made that commandment? It doesn't matter. He was speaking to his people. No, it matters. And in fact, the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to indicate, Moses to the Israelites say, and he put them, not Calvary Chapel, not your church or mine, he put them under the law. And it just makes sense. I think hermeneutics 101 uh, is is two parts. One, to whom is the author speaking? And two, what did he intend to say? And so to presume that, well, we're all God's people, and so God gave that to them as an everlasting covenant, so we have the same everlasting covenant, is just bad hermeneutics, hermeneutics being the the, uh, science of, biblical interpretation, really the interpretation of any piece of literature. So very important. We can find out who God is speaking to, and you don't get caught up in the, well, did he mean us? You know, uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, was God speaking to us or about us? The answer is no. He was speaking to his people, Israel, when they were facing being judged for being far from God. So, that's the real advantage of being a dispensationalist. The Bible is very confusing if you are not approaching it with a dispensationalist viewpoint. Now, let me also say this, Adam. This is important. There are people who are extreme on every single doctrinal issue. And dispensationalists, there are basically seven dispensations Uh, There are dispensationalists who find dispensations, endless dispensations, you know, Uh, there's in the Gospels. It changed in the book of Acts. It changed later in the book of Acts. It changed as Paul was writing the epistles. No, it didn't change at all. The Bible is consistent. It is uh, without contradiction. Um, So we have to avoid the extremes. And the extreme dispensationalists, it's actually called hyper-dispensationalism, Uh, that gets just nutty, Adam, and so be careful. Let me recommend um, a study, C.I. Schofield, uh, his his study Bible. It's the only study Bible I ever recommend because it doesn't really have a lot of studying, but it presents things from a dispensational perspective, and it really is the only way. When when we get into um, the differences between Israel and the church, um, a dispensationalist never gets confused. The church has replaced Israel? No, the church hasn't replaced Israel because God has to fulfill the promises they made to Abraham. So there's a lot of advantages of being dispensationalist, but primarily it just makes the Bible cohesive. It makes the Bible make sense, and um, you, you don't have to do anything other than um, read it for what it says, understand what it means. And then you can apply the principles in your life. You know, the truth is, the verse that I mentioned in Second Chronicles, if my people will call by my name, will humble themselves and pray. We know that that verse is read at every national day of prayer. Um, the people who are using it are using it out of context and incorrectly. Now, if they would say, in principle, as God's family, we're Christians, born-again believers— If we would humble ourselves and pray, if we'd seek the Lord, then God would hear our prayers and answer. But we can't take the promises to Israel and claim them for ourselves. That's very important as we're studying our Bibles. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Chip from our mobile app. Chip said, a pastor friend of mine told me this past weekend that topical Bible teaching is better and more apropos uh, in this day and age than expositional Bible teaching. Now, this is my insert. Into, there's more more email here. Uh, that's interesting to me. I I, I can't believe. It. He said, I'll continue now. He believes talking about what's on our minds and dealing with today's events has more impact on the congregation And it's what people really want to hear rather than just going through the Bible, going over stuff we are not dealing with at the time. I know you teach expositionally, so I assume you would disagree. Chip, I couldn't disagree more. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that. I think the key sentence in your email here is that it's what people really want to hear. We want temporal solutions. We want fast fixes. We want to believe that if our candidate gets elected to the White House, then all of our problems are going to go away and things are going to get better. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. I understand it's what people want to hear. But it's the Bible that is described as living and active and sharper than the double-edged sword. You know, I can teach a topical study um, and and, uh, nobody's going to get convicted of their own sin. But if I teach the Word... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If I teach that, then the Holy Spirit is going to be able to convict them of sin. When I get to Romans chapter 7, and I can say even the Apostle Paul struggled with his flesh. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. The reality, Chip, is that people do not want to be convicted. I've had people straight up tell me, you know, Pastor Ron, it's it's hard to come here because you 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 always demand that we. I had some, but one person tell me that that I have too high standards. I said, Do you want lower standards? Do you want God a God that expects lower standards? He said, I come to church to feel good about myself. Well, unfortunately, there are congregations. I don't like to call them churches; they'll do that, but. You see, those are not churches where people are getting the living, active word that will equip them to deal with the world that we live in. I can do a topical study. I can tell some really cute stories. I can make people feel really good about who they are. But the problem is when they go outside those doors and the the events of the world around us come crashing in, they're ill-equipped to deal with them. So this is just somebody who wants to be Have his ears tickled. He doesn't want to be convicted. He wants to be okay with having a lukewarm relationship with the Lord. And um, that's a pastor who's going to stand before the Lord and try to explain why he was ashamed of the word. You know, one of the things, Chip, the easiest thing to do in this day and age is to have a big church. You get a big building, you tell people what they want to hear. And you're going to have a huge church. But God hasn't called us to have a big church. He's called us to represent him, to tell the truth in love, to teach the word. Ephesians chapter 4 says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There is simply no way during these topical studies that make people feel good. There's simply no way to equip them for the work that God has called them to do in these last days. We are truly in the last days, Chip. And we need to be ready for war. And the idea that talking about today's events has more impact on the congregation is silliness. Because nothing, nothing has more impact on a congregation than the living and active Word of God. You know, I tell our people all the time, and we've been talking about this. I have a pastor's discipleship class that that we do every other Saturday, and um, it's a couple of hours long. And I just tell people that that one of our distinctives here at Calvary Chapel is teaching the Word, and that's never going to change. We teach the Word because it is only the power of God manifest through His Word that enables us to deal with all of the things that go on in the world that we live in. I think we forget that when people come to church, they're hurting, they're broken, they're confused. And we need to give them answers, not human wisdom. But we need to give them answers. Your pastor friend is right in that it's what people want to hear. But it's not what we're called to give them. We're called to give them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth So help us, Jesus. That's that's exactly what we're called to do. And I can just tell you this, Chip. Every good thing that's ever happened at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio Has happened only because of the teaching of the Word of God. Whether it's me teaching it or one of the other pastors teaching it or one of our ladies' Bible studies or men's Bible studies, every good thing that's happened has happened because of the Word of God. And the pastor that says, Well, I don't want to deal with serious things. I don't want to deal with sin. I don't want people to be bored. I would guess, and I'm not boasting here, but I think the people here at Calvary Chapel would say they're not at all bored. By the teaching through the word. there are some but you see that's what we're called to do. Hey we've got 30 minutes left in the show 3409585 this is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, 340-9585. That's area code 210 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. As a Christian, can we and should we pray for war? Hmm. I really believe that Iran is behind or at least... Uh, a chief contributor to all the trouble in the Middle East today. After the killing of three of our brave soldiers in the region over the weekend, I really feel like we should strike the real cause rather than hedge around the issue. I believe we should defend ourselves. Am I off base? A uh, little bit off base, but mostly not. Let me let me explain. Um, there is a such thing as a just war. Uh, you can open your Bible, uh, the book of Joshua, the Canaanite campaign. Um, but but there are other examples of just war. Um, we need to defend ourselves. and um, but, but I don't think that means we should pray for war. We're to pray for peace. We're to pray for revival. We're to pray for the Spirit of God to move upon people's hearts and get people saved. Now, the reality, however, is that uh, there are people who... Uh, aren't concerned about peace, and certainly in the middle East that's the case. Um, Iran is certainly behind a lot of the trouble in the Middle east. Uh, Iran uh, identifies the United states as as uh, their mortal enemy uh, of course, along with Israel, but so too do the other Arab nations in the region. Um, And I think uh, you're right in the sense that Iran is behind the attacks uh, that we've been experiencing, attacks that uh, our administration uh, has not really done anything about. Uh, In fact, we have contributed by uh, giving them literally billions upon billions of dollars um, because they say, oh, we'll be good with it, when in fact we know that they can't be trusted. So I think if we enter into a war and certainly killing three of our soldiers uh, gives us a just reason to attack Iran, um, I just don't think uh, – let me let me phrase this two ways. I don't think that our nation has a stomach for war. I also don't think that uh, our current administration has a stomach for war. I think it is contrary to everything that they believe about let's just get along. I mean, they've tried to buy uh, Iran off. That hasn't worked. Iran has broken promise after promise and still uh, they're unwilling to do anything about it. So uh, I think we need to get to the issue. I think we need to defend ourselves. Uh, I'm and nobody's ever asked my opinion, but I think if uh, we send our soldiers into war at any level, then we have to be 100 percent committed to winning that war, period no matter the cost, no matter the collateral damage. And that's just simply not something that our nation, our administration has the stomach for any longer. So um, don't pray for war, pray for peace. Uh, at the same time, uh, ask God continually to protect our soldiers. Uh, ask God to give our our uh, governing officials, including um, and especially our president, the wisdom to deal with these issues in a godly and just way. Um, But just leave it to the Lord uh, rather than try to turn your prayers. I just don't think war is ever the right answer or God's answer, even though, as I said, there are times when a just war is necessary, a righteous war, and uh, we may be approaching that. Can I just say one other thing relative, not specifically germane to this Question, but we're going to see this more and more. You know, up until now we've seen terrorist groups, Hamas and um, the PLO and and uh, other groups. Um, We've seen terrorist groups attacking, but Jesus said, in the end, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Nations will attack nations, and this is really, I think, what we're seeing—the very beginnings. Jesus said, these are the beginning. Um, um signs or the birth pangs of of the very very end, and I think what we're seeing now anonymous is that uh we're we're seeing the world now right on the precipice of being plunged into a war where it's nations attacking nations. And I think that's exactly um, consistent with what Jesus prophesied. All of that to say, we're in the last days. We need to be serious about our walk with the Lord. We need to be serious about um, our commitment to serving the Lord in these last days. And I just don't think too many of us are. Here's a question from Charlotte. Should we pray for unbelievers when, if God answers our prayers, they may give their God glory instead of the real God? Um, Charlotte, if I understand your question, you mean like pray for somebody to get a job or somebody to get healed from a disease? And because they're not believers, when they say, yeah, Allah, help me. Or if that's what you're saying, um, yeah, pray for them. But always include the prayer that God would open their eyes and their hearts to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pray for them. And if they come back to you and say, you know, God answered our prayers, well, then what you do is say, yeah, but but now let's talk about which God. Now it's more important than ever that you find out if the God that you've been praying to is the real God because the one I asked to answer your prayers, that's the real God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think we can make that distinction but I think we should always pray for unbelievers. Um, I One of the things I like doing when I'm meeting strangers, if they have a, an obvious prayer need or they let me know that they have a prayer need, uh, I don't care where I am. We, we like to pray for them right there. And people really appreciate it. And I'm always going to close my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, it often will open a door. And those divine appointments, I think, can be really, really fruitful. So, Charlotte, if I got the gist of your question correctly, um, yeah, continue to pray for them. And when they give their God glory, if it's in conversation with you, you can say, well, now that's something that we really need to discuss. Because the God I've been praying to is Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible. And I can prove that he is who he said he was and that your God really isn't. People challenge you. They may be... Critical of you, but you're tough enough, Charlotte. You can handle it. This is from Paul. He says, Should we pray for countries? Well, here's another question about the same. I'm sorry, I'm having to clear my throat a lot. I've got this mountain cedar craziness going on. Paul says, Should we pray for countries that have a false God like Allah? Uh, what should we pray for those nations? Um I think Paul the other questions that we've answered today just pray for revival pray that the spirit of God would reveal the the identity of the real God to them so pray for them pray that that they could exist in peace um, we have examples of the pagan nations around Israel enjoying times of peace. David uh, made treaties and had long standing relationships with people like Hiram from Tyre. Uh, so, yeah, pray for them. Uh, but pray that God would open their eyes and that they would turn to the Lord. Now, I'm not a big fan of praying for anything other than people. Nations, God's not dealing with nations these days like He did in the Old Testament. This is a dispensation where God is dealing with individuals. So, don't pray for countries. Pray for the people that live there. You know, when you look at uh, Gaza and the mess that it's in with Hamas, um, the, the the tragic reality is that there are. Um, so many people, countless numbers of people who are suffering and who are in pain. And while they've been raised to hate Jews and to hate the Jewish God, and, and hate Christians too, by the way, um, there's nothing like pain and misery that the Spirit of God can use to touch people. So yeah, pray for people, not countries. And when you pray for them, always pray for salvation. But practically, we can also pray that those people who are collateral damage, the innocent bystanders, the people who uh, didn't want war, the people who didn't want their whole lives devastated, um, pray that they would they would have a place to sleep, pray that they would have clean water, pray that uh, their families could survive and, and, and that, that peace could return to the region. And, of course, we know that that means we're praying for Jesus Christ. So, Paul, I think that's the best I can do with that question. 210-340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Susan. Um, Pastor Ron, how do you explain the believers in Acts 19 not having the Holy Spirit? Susan, uh, we make a big mistake, and this is why... Expositional Bible teaching is so important. We go to Acts chapter 19 and we say some disciples. Paul found some disciples. And then he said, well, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? We've not even heard that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. So we automatically equate disciples with believers. The people in Ephesus that Paul met in Acts chapter 19 were not Christians yet. Now we know when Paul prays for him, and he tells them about the Holy Spirit and lays hands on him, the Spirit comes upon him. Well, then they're born again, and they, they become believers. But they are not believers when they first met Paul. So that's really important. it said they, he, they met some believers, some who were in the way. Then we'd have a problem. Jesus said if you don't have the Spirit, you're none of his, or you don't belong to him. We all know, Susan, that from the day of Pentecost forward, in Acts chapter 2, that when the, 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 the believer surrenders his or her heart to Jesus Christ, asks for forgiveness of our sins, then the Spirit comes in us. Ephesians 1 says, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. In other words, that's our born-again moment. And so the Spirit of God then gives us uh, discernment and gives us some instruction. Um, but these men didn't know anything at all about the Spirit. And because they were seeking God, remember, God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him because they were seeking God. God brought them right face to face with the greatest evangelist who's ever lived, the Apostle Paul. And the prayers were answered, the questions were answered, and they were filled with Holy Spirit. This is not, I repeat, it is not a second experience with the Holy Spirit. Um, Clearly, they didn't have the Spirit. They didn't know anything about the Spirit. They hadn't even heard that there is such a thing as the Spirit. So, Paul gave them the explanation, and then they were filled with the Spirit when they became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, it says, Disciples, Susan. We can't assume or we shouldn't assume that that simply means uh, that they were believers. A disciple, biblically, is a student. Uh, John the Baptist had disciples. By the way, we see it in Acts chapter 18 as well with um, uh, Apollos. My brain went blank for a moment. Um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila explained the way of God to him more completely and uh, when um, um, Apollos who was clearly a gifted preacher was preaching about the kingdom of God being at hand he was a disciple of John the Baptist when Priscilla and Aquila gave him the rest of the story he became a follower of Jesus Christ so um, just read carefully don't make the assumptions Uh, our understanding of the words is correct Thank you, Susan. Peggy says, is Hades in Luke chapter 16 the same thing as purgatory? No, um, uh, Peggy, Hades and purgatory are not the same thing because purgatory doesn't exist. And uh, in Luke chapter 16, they're in the abuso, that's the Greek word, it's translated abyss, uh, the place of torment. Uh, That's a holding tank that is still uh, waiting to be emptied. Uh, for the end of the age. But uh, no, there's no such thing as purgatory, period. So um, don't get tricked by um, Catholic doctrine. No such thing as purgatory. It's a made-up thing. Here is a question that comes from Jerry from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor. This is related to the question about expositional versus topical study. One thing mentioned on the question is the relevancy of expository approach to our present lives. I'm not very good at explaining or using words, but I'm sure you can speak to that more than I can articulate. Yeah, Jerry, the, 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 the pastor, the, the expository tre- preacher, our responsibility is to make sure that it's applicable. You know, I've had a pastor ask me, "Well, how do you ever preach the gospel if you just go verse by verse? That gets so boring and so tedious. And if the gospel's not there, how do you preach?" There's no problem. Now, Jerry, what I do every day, uh, let me rephrase: When I'm when I'm at the pulpit, um, I want to explain to uh, my audience what the passage says. I want to explain what it means. How do we interpret it? And then I want to help them apply it in their lives. And Jerry, it's clear that if I can't do that, then I am ineffective as a Bible teacher. So I never have any problem of making the Bible study relevant because while Pastor Ron's not relevant, the the Bible is, It's as I said earlier, living and active. So um, nothing could be more relevant. And if you've ever heard me teach a Bible study, Application is a huge part of it, and I want my people to go home equipped every day to practice that day in their lives what they learned in that particular Bible study. So maybe I go too slowly through the Bible at times. I don't know. I wish I could do bigger chunks and do it faster, but but any pastor who says the Bible's not relevant or won't reach to people's lives doesn't understand the Bible themselves, And let me repeat from the earlier question. If we give people what they want, we are failing in our responsibility as a servant of God who tells us to give them his word. Never our opinion, give them his word. One other comment since I brought up the word opinion. There are times, Jerry, when I will impose my opinion on a study, but every time I do it, and I hope I'm being 100% True here, I think I am. But every time my opinion is interjected into the Bible study, I let the people know. Now this is my opinion. My opinion and your opinion are are the same. Uh, I think my opinion is consistent with what the Word says. But you can measure it for yourself. I don't want them to think I'm speaking for God when I give my opinion. I want them to know that I'm speaking for God as I'm teaching the word, verse by verse, and chapter by chapter. So Jerry, I hope that answers your question. Um, uh, uh, It is my opinion, and I'm giving you my opinion now, that topical Bible studies is far less relevant because we take verses out of context. We tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. And I believe that God brings people to church because He has something to say to them. And a the topical Bible study doesn't. Let me say one other thing, and then I'll get on to the next question. There are wonderful topical Bible teachers. One of my favorite just went home to be with the Lord not long ago, Charles Stanley. Um, he does great topical Bible studies. But he is heavy on application and he is always giving the passage of Scripture in context or was before he went to be with the Lord. And when he went to heaven, he heard, well done, good and faithful servant. So there are good topical teachers out there, but the depth at which you teach is significant. So I hope that answers your question, Jerry. Thank you very, very much. Nick wants to know, he said, where would someone go if they never heard the gospel? Um, Nick, we underestimate the power of the gospel. Um, Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, Everybody's heard the gospel in one way or another. Romans chapter 1 says that God reveals himself to us through our conscience. The fact that we have a, a little governor that says, no, don't do that. That's wrong. That's God making sure that we understand that he's real. Romans 1 also says God reveals himself to us in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. There's no nation or language where it's not understood. Now, it's true that there are places in this world where people have never heard that you must be born again, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God and God the Son. But if they will set their hearts on finding out, if seeking God, then they'll be found by God. I think of Cornelius, was a God-fearing man, did good things. He was really seeking God. Well, God sent the most famous apostle in the world at that point, Peter, to him personally to give him the rest of the story. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He was just on his way back home to his queen. And um, God said, Philip, go down to Gaza. And as Philip was going down, he was actually transported supernaturally. Um, The eunuch was reading the Jewish scriptures and not understanding it. And Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I understand unless somebody teaches me. Tell me, is the, the, the prophet talking about himself or another? And it was a perfect opening, and Philip then could tell him. My point is that anybody who is truly seeking God is going to find a revelation of Jesus Christ. God's not limited by region. God's not limited by culture or nationality. Anybody who really wants to find God is going to find him. And we have to have confidence in that. And we've got an empty tomb which screams Jesus Christ is God. So everybody can know the truth if they will know the truth. But the person, for example, who believes in Allah or Buddha, that person has a responsibility and they are accountable to God to find out whether or not the God they believe in is really God. You can't just accept it because that's the way I was raised. That's what my parents thought. Uh, if I was any other religion that I could be killed, none of that matters. Anybody who's really seeking God will find it. And by the way, there are, are great moves of God's Spirit going on in Iran. We had a question about Iran. Um, in, in the Middle East, Arabs um, are, are having personal visitations by the Lord. Um, God's doing... Miracles similar to some of the miracles that were done in our New Testament. And he's doing that because he is rewarding those who are diligently seeking him. He knows that they would be lost. So where would someone go if they never heard the gospel? If they didn't respond to what they did here, whether it's conscience or creation, then, then, Nick, uh, they'd go to hell forever and ever and ever. Last question for the day. It's also from Ronald. I think it's a different Ronald. What's the key to loving people who are really difficult and you don't feel like loving them? Um, Ronald, the key is faith. Romans five five says, God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that He's given us. So, when you don't feel like loving somebody, that's when you have to make a sort of a love withdrawal. You know, God, you deposited your love. The uh, King James says, His love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, You've inundated my heart with the love of God for people. So empower me to love them with your love, not with my love. It's the only way, Ronald, that you can love people who are difficult. And then you pray for them, and God really and truly begins to change your heart. I was a difficult person, and Jesus chased me down. Jesus surrounded me with a wife who prayed for me he surrounded me with people I, I, I had no idea they were Christians I was surrounded with Christians and those people loved me as difficult as I was my goodness my mother who loved me told Paula because everybody loves Paula leave him honey you can come live with us nobody will blame you that's how difficult I was and yet the Lord was there so, Ronald, I hope that answers your question. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Uh, appreciate the questions. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to The Word of Stand For Life. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 of The Word. We'll see you then.